I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, quest. Hello. 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 <laughs> this is a very exciting hello, wasn't it? It was very emphatic. Yes. I'm because I'm excited. I am. I'm always excited when you join us. I want to thank you for being here with us. I am Vic Cohen, broadcasting live from Skid Row Studios in luscious downtown Los Angeles. A lot of exciting stuff here happening tonight. There's been some serious feature film shooting. I was walking over to the studio and I saw um, Chris D'Elia rehearsing uh, on the sidewalk for a film I believe is called um, Flock something like Flock of Geeks or Flock Flock of Dudes. Yeah, that's a film. It sounds like a serious drama. Not really. But it was very cool to see that as I was walking here to the studio. And just a reminder, the show is called It's a Fair Question because on this show, every question is a fair question. There's no such thing as a bad question. That's right. Everything is out on the table. And today I have a, a, or this evening, I have a really good friend. I'm very excited to have him. Um, he is a writer, a television writer. He writes uh, sci-fi, action, adventure, and drama type shows. And uh, his credits include NCIS. That's a pretty good credit, wouldn't you say? I would say so. And his name is Charles Height. Hello, Charles. Hello, Vic. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you. And now, being that there's been a royal... Uh, baby, Prince Charles is a grandfather, okay. and you being a Charles, mm. I almost feel like congratulating you. Uh, yeah, whatever that means these days to <laughs> you know have royal lineage, except you know a lot of money. And, it means a lot, right? And their version of TMZ all circling the uh, right. Yeah, now the castle. You weren't named after Prince Charles, were you? I was named after I believe there was a Charles. Uh, Black Prince or something like that. Maybe that was my middle name, Edward. I don't know. I think you were named after Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> now, ah. now there's a name of royalty, <laughs> 70s, 70s royalty. Yeah. You know those guys were all cooked when they were on those games. I shows, did not know you? that. They were all just toasted out of their minds. Do you, Jeremy, do you remember Charles Nelson Riley? Do you ever watch Hollywood Squares? Yes. Uh, he can talk like that. Although that was also... He, Brett Summers, they were all just smashed on vodka. According, that, that was the legend anyway. And wow. you know, all those poor housewives at home who thought that he and, and Paul Lynn were just such, you know, adorable, you know, men. They're just clueless. Well, it doesn't you know? mean they weren't adorable. <laughs> no, it just means no. they were drunk off their ass. Well, I mean, I'm Paul Lynn and Charles Nelson Riley, you know, another <laughs> secret going on there. Love those guys. <laughs> yeah. What if, you know, today they could get married. Well, yeah, Paul is not alive, so that would be uh, a very strange marriage. Well, I think they were married back then, probably. Well, know? they could come; they could do it officially, and they'd be yeah. such a fun couple. And I would totally want to go to their parties. Oh, they could get married to each other. That's say. what I'm oh, saying. That, yeah, that, not that they could get married. But I, I think I could take about, I don't, you know, yeah, I, I don't know awesome. about about ten minutes in the room with the two of them before I blow my brains. <laughs> really, I think they would be so much fun. I would love them. So you just throw what's his name in there too? Uh, was it Rip Taylor? Oh yeah, and he's still alive, you know. Too. He's great. He'd bring the confetti. So, what is that? What is with you and this whole crime, science fiction, drama stuff? I, you know, it, it's so strange you ask that because it's you know it, it's not the crime, but the science fiction stuff. 
I was never a guy, a kid who read comic books. I never particularly liked science fiction. I never read Isaac Asimov. Asimov? Asimov? I'm sorry. Go on, yeah. (laughs) And uh, it's just something that they hired me to do. I think the first... Real science fiction. I Who's did, they? What? Well, the the, know, man? the people who pay you the money. <laughs> the you know, in this case, is a you know a uh, a scoundrel out of Vancouver who owned the production <laughs> company. Who in the Writers Guild of Canada magazine they print um, every month the twenty uh, the top twenty five unfair people you're not supposed to do business with. And his name is the principal on, on 18 of every month. Really? <laughs> yes. What do you mean he's number 18? You no, know, there are 18 out of the 25 oh. every month are companies that where he's the principal. Wow. Yeah, but anyway. When you uh, say principal, what do you mean? He owns them? I, well, he... Or is yes. the head executive producer? He is. He owns them. And, you know, he just every time they declare him unfair, he just apparently starts another company and <laughs> starts another name. Was that your goal to write for all game. the top... People who should not, you shouldn't write for? Well, I, I don't know if that was the goal, but I, I, I certainly <laughs> have written for some, you know, some uh, particularly uh, colorful people, shall we say. In the Are you Canadian? I'm, I have a uh, green card in Canada. I work up in Canada and I live up there sometimes. Whoa. Well. Yeah. So you're the guy with the green card to Canada? To Canada, yeah. So what are you afraid if war breaks out, you've got a place to hide? Uh, yeah, it was so funny. <laughs> you know, I remember uh, being up there during 9 11. You know, because you were scared. You went no, right no, there. I, I was I was working there, and you know, we had we were watching it on the TV, and one of the Canadians says, "You know, how could they do this to us?" And I'm like, "Us." <laughs> you know? Well, we and, are. We're like brothers. Well, I know. I, I mean, yeah. they're, they're no, they're they're wonderful. I love the Canadians. I mean, Jesus. You know, I mean, compared to you know, you go up Jesus there, was the, a Canadian. The, the way they treat each other up there, compared to the way you know, some well, of us treat each other down here, is you know, they're, it's no, funny. they're no saints, but they're a lot closer to it than we are. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I first of all, I love. Canadians, because I'm working in comedy, they get the jokes. Yes. And they're very dry, and some of the best comic minds have come from Canada. And they're very self-effacing, too. Yeah, they're great. And, yeah. you know, doing a lot of work with Jaime Mandel, I got to be very familiar with Canada, because I lived in Canada, as you have many times. Well, where, did you, where did you live? I lived in Toronto. I lived in Toronto. For where? six months. Where? At the city center. I think it's called the Sheridan City Center. Yeah. This is right across it's from, down, I think, City Hall. It's downtown, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. sort of down there on uh, Queen? Queen and Bay. Yeah, it was. Be- I loved yeah, it. Bay, Bay Street is sort of the visiting American ghetto. You know, when you do a, a TV show up there, they kind of used to shove you in apartments so that we're all well, down Bay Street. There. I loved, well, yeah. we were on Queen and uh-huh. I loved it. It was the dead of winter. Had a great time. and uh, It's a great city. It grew on me. I hated it when I first got there, but it really grew on me and I really enjoy it. Now. It's a great place to yeah. work and uh, the people are fantastic. Yeah. Um, I I was doing hidden camera and I was the guy on camera uh, messing with people. Huh. So in Canada, they're very, um, they're so nice that you could get away with so much before anyone would blow their lid. <laughs> you know? And I remember I did this bit where um, I was playing a man on the street, which I did frequently on the show. And, and I was just really obnoxious, but mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a loving way, but they, they were like, we, people were taking it, you know? And yeah. So eventually they said, you know, I said, okay, I will get someone to flip out. Don't worry. So they kind of let me do my thing. And so it took me uh, at telling a woman that she looked like, I go, hi, this is Vic. And today I'm talking to women who look like prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go that far. 
And I well, felt I mean, horrible. Well, you just, you know, in the summer in Toronto and L.A., I mean, that's just every other woman, isn't well, it? Well, she was gorgeous, and I felt bad, but fortunately she had a fun time with it after she slapped yeah. me. But You just um, don't want to try that routine up at Jane and Finch in Toronto, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't know Jane and Finch. That's that's their the, the most ghetto area of Toronto. Oh, really? Yeah, I wasn't. No, this was a nice part of town. And... Um, yeah, so the so it was funny because after I was done, the the executive producer said, "You can't do that, Vic. You know this is going to be on network television. You can't go up to a woman and say she's you know it's a prostitute. Come on!" And then it turned out to be, of course, it ended up airing, and it was in. Mm. in they actually liked it a lot. They oh, loved great! It. So, um, but I know what you talk about Canada's wonderful. Mm. What made you, uh, were you working with a Canadian and, and that seemed like the right thing? You had to get a card? Well, it, it was more of an opportunity. I mean, I was up there kind of as a consultant the first year in a show called Relic Hunter. And uh, I was that actually- That sounded dirty. <laughs> and I, you say it, it, it actually was dirty. It was-, it was um, Relic Hunter. I, I was, I was okay. she's a female Indiana Jones, Tia Carrera. Oh. She goes all around to find these relics. And I was actually brought up there because they felt that um, the Canadians didn't have the sensibility to pick the extras who were the hottest, sexiest girls and, and feature them enough. They wanted more sex. So they brought me up to kind of look at the extras and, and make sure they were positioned properly. That was your writing job. That, that, that was ostensibly what I was sent up there for. But when I went up there, um, I got to know the producer and he was very generous, a guy named John Hackett and his... Um, his production manager, Wanda Chafee, and they said, well, you know, we have a body up Hold here. Hold on a second. They want a Chafee? Wanda Chafee. Okay, yeah. sorry. I thought you said they <laughs> want a Chafee, no. which... And, and they said, well, we've got a warm body up here and we're very busy. So we're going to teach this guy how to do a lot of production stuff. And, uh, you know, I was also, you know, doing a little bit of, you know, story notes and stuff. But it was like, let's put him, you know, let's show him how to do music spotting. Let's, I can't afford to go on this location, Scout. Let's send him on the location. What's music spotting? Music spotting is when you watch the episode and you're deciding where music cues should come in. So you learn that. Yeah, I learned that. I learned about editing, post-production. I sat in all the meetings. I learned about stunts. I learned about production design. Um, you know, and I, and just being the guy from LA, people start coming up to you and asking you questions. What do you, you know? What should I do? What do I think? And I'm like, uh, and but eventually you get used to doing it. And then the next year they wanted. Wait, me hold to on. Let out. me just yeah. get clear on that. Yeah. Because you were from Los Angeles, they kind of gave you extra respect. Not like just they because were I was from Los Angeles, because they knew that the producers, the writer producers, were all out of Los Angeles. Those were that's where the powers that be, who kind of ran the show creatively, were. So and they that's just who kind sent of, you. Yeah, and you know, at the time I was really just a glorified assistant, to be honest with you. But because I was coming from that. You know, everybody started asking me questions I had, you know, people coming up from the you know, the art department asking me about, you know, opinions about you know, props. And, and Did you have the uh, authority to be greenlighting those uh, kind of things? Eventually I did, you know. I mean, I, I would talk to the producer and he would say, you know, go ahead and you decide, you know. And he would, he would teach me. Again, he was a great guy and he taught me a lot about, you know... Uh, I just sat in on every meeting. I went to location scouts. I sat on location. I watched them shoot. And I, you know, I tend to ask, still to this day, last summer I was working on a show called Lost Girl. And I just ask questions constantly about things I, you know, I am, I'm not afraid to look dumb to learn. You know? Lost Girl, is that yeah. airing right now? It is, yeah. It, that's on sci-fi? That's on sci-fi, yeah. Okay, congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's is my, it, my first producing credit. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. What, what does it usually start? You start as a writer and then work your way up in credits to yeah, producer? Uh, generally in, in uh, the, the hierarchy is you start as a staff writer where there's a certain, you know, and it's different in Canada because their guild is a little bit different, but it's generally writer and then you become a story editor, then executive story editor, then you go to co-producer, producer 
uh, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and executive producer. And along the way, it, it really depends upon the show, and it's all at the you know at the whim of the executive producer about how much people are involved. But writers in television are a lot more than writers usually. You know, they are actually doing a lot of the producing as well. They're getting casting. They're you know they're on the set. They're talking with the actors. They're talking with the directors. This is more. Is this this is more when we're talking um, drama, mm-hmm. sci-fi action adventure are we saying are you suggesting that's this that's the way it works on sitcoms and st- i'm not really that familiar to be honest with you with with sitcoms and the hierarchy the way that is i mean i understand it, it's a very different dynamic look you know you're you're shooting once a week you know you've got one day to shoot um i mean i, I suppose there are other you know uh, one camera shows where they go out a little bit more but you're basically in a room with 20 guys chained to the desk 15 hours a day with someone cracking a whip over you screaming, be funny, be funny. That's my understanding of it anyway. Maybe right. it's a bit of an exaggeration. And what is it? What's the experience in your writing room? You know, um, in, not to say that is exactly what goes no, on. Sitcoms, no, I mean, but, generally you get a bunch of guys together. Let's say guys and gals together. You get a staff of, you know, anywhere from, you know, a Canadian show. You're lucky if you got four, but, you know, up to seven or eight. And you um, start at the beginning of the year and you, you know, you work on story ideas and somebody's maybe laid out an arc for the season of where they generally want some of the characters to go and where they want them to end up. But you have people pitching stories and then, you know, um, you write up paragraphs and get the stories approved and then you start breaking the story in the room with four or five, with, with the entire writing team. You're breaking down, you know, what happens in each scene and you're working together as a team and it's it's very efficient. Now, there are a lot of shows, I understand, I've worked on one of them, and to be honest with you, I don't quite understand why someone would do this, where they, they individualize. In other words, you don't have a writing room. You don't have, the, uh, you don't have the collective brain of four or five people working on the same thing. They just send each writer off and say, you're going to do this, this story. This is the concept. Now you come up with a story by yourself. I, I just really, if you've got four or five people, it's just so much more efficient. You always come up with stuff that you could never come up with on your own. Right. Collectively, I think it's just so much more of an efficient process. Well, Yet there are producers who insist on just kind of you know having people do it isolated, and um, yeah. Now my thought on that is probably, and yeah. uh, of course I'm guessing here, and you'll yeah. be able to confirm for me uh-huh. when a when a show goes up for production. Let's say there's what's a typical for the kind of shows you do? What's an order? Ten episodes? Uh, these, for, no, these days it's thirteen. I okay. mean, on, on so, network down here, you'll start with thirteen. Sometimes you'll start with six. You so, know, I mean, you hope to go to twenty-two, but but in you know, in the Canada system, it's thirteen is the norm now. Okay, so they got thirteen episodes. Yeah. And my understanding is that part of negotiating at the beginning of the season with agents, mm-hmm. you know, the writers' agents, and is how many are each writer? How many episodes are going to be assigned? For example, like the creator might might want to take the first six, and yeah. then uh, that, that, or it, it's rarer. I mean, if 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 an executive producer or a creator is really doing his job, it's really hard for him. I've seen guys who've written every episode, and Vince David, uh, who was the there was. Um, Allie McMeal. Uh, David uh, Kelly. Yeah, did he write every episode? Uh, yeah, I mean, he had help. You know, a lot of these guys say, well, the, the writer's room is more of a think tank for me. But, you know, guys like that, I i don't know how much, I don't see how they can be incredibly involved in production if you're doing that. Unless you're, you know, maybe he is the world's greatest writer. They can bang out those drafts in two hours or a day. I mean, I'm, I'm fast, but I'm not that fast. Well, you know? here's, now when you say, okay, a couple yeah. things. 
when shows are, are first laid out, as far mm. as they're putting a staff together, writers are often assigned a certain number of episodes and that's lucrative because not only are they getting a weekly fee for being a, a writer on the show, right. they get extra money for writing certain a, num- a script. Am I correct? Uh, unless you're a staff writer. Staff writer is the beginning uh, junior uh, thing for the WGA and there they can take, uh, they can, your script fees are applicable against your weekly Okay. Yeah, but you're only allowed to do that, I think, for six months before they have to, you know, fish or cut bait and promote you to story editor. But they, but the idea is that um, you want to be assigned. What I'm getting at is that perhaps in those shows where they assign a writer and go, "This is your story, mm-hmm. John. This is your story, Bill, Susie." Right. It's because they've been assigned probably contractually. Am I mistaken? Not specific stories. They may no, but just say so you have a minimum. Of, if you're guaranteed a minimum of two scripts, now you might do more than that. You know, but sometimes as a new writer you never worked with, you want to hedge your bets. Yeah, you know, I read your, you know, your spec, but it has nothing to do with the show. Let's say you turn in your first script and it's awful. And in your contract, I've locked in for having you write four scripts. Now I'm screwed. You know, so they try to do it as little as possible, you know, with, with somebody who's, again, an unproven commodity with the executive producers never worked with the person before. Now, if they have and they know them and they trust them. It's easier to, to give them a minimum guarantee. I've known writers who say that their script that supposedly is their script and the credit says they wrote it. There's mm-hmm. not like, there's maybe one word that they actually wrote yeah, and again, because that, of all the changes. Well, look, and that's also, you know, a, a variable about what's fair. You know, I mean, um, I've never done a credit arbitration. I've, I've been asked a couple of times, but it's been settled. But yeah, I mean, I there's everything from, you know, producers who are incredibly generous who will do, you know, Look, I mean, I don't want to say what show it was, but it was a recent show. And I had to basically rewrite two scripts, page one. I mean, 90% of the stuff of what you read in there is what I wrote. And the writer, the other writer who turned in the first draft got all the credit and all the money. But I mean, that when you're working as a story editor, that's part of your job. You rewrite and you mm-hmm. do it all the time and you do it a lot. And if a script comes in screwed, you know, you're going to be the one. You know, and uh, I've had to do it in 48 hours. You know? But you're also the guy getting paid more money. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting paid very well at a weekly, you know, to be able to do that. I mean, you know, yeah. So obviously um, there is downtime. You know, you're going from show to show. Mm, yeah. <laughs> How do you deal with the downtime? Very poorly until recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was this phenomenon. I would, before I was a writer, I was an assistant, right? So Assistant in, produ- in production? I was just assistant to a show creator and a producer, right? Okay. And so, you know, he had these overall deals, which they don't give out that many unless you are, you know, God these days. So uh, can I say God on the air? You may. Okay. Yes. God's a, small, a listener. It's a small G, just no. in case. <laughs> God's a listener, actually. Okay, good. He, he's here all the time. Good, good. He's a fan of the show. Two Ds. Yeah. <laughs> Why, do we seem like a religious show here? I mean, look oh, at uh, Jeremy. You think there's any religion here? <laughs> you never know people these days. I mean, you know. It's called uh, Skid Row Studios. Evangel- I saw that reality show about that evangelical guy who's all tatted out with, you know, hipster plaid and, you know. <laughs> no, we're all we're all about God, though. Okay. We love God here. Yes. We love any, any, um, no, but anyway, I was, uh, you know, I was an assistant to this guy and we, he would have these overall deals and we would, it'd be a, you know, relatively normal nine to five existence while you're developing shows. He'd get a show on the air and then, you know, your hours would increase. But when the show's over, you go back to work nine to five, you're around people, right? Well, when you're not an assistant, you get your first writing job and all of a sudden you're a writer and the show is over you find yourself back in Los Angeles and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go to work and be around all these people for nine, where is everybody? There's nowhere to go. 
you know, and you are thrown into the, you know, <laughs> the abyss of the, <laughs> the Starbucks community, you know, with everybody with their laptops. And uh, like I said, I just kind of freaked out. I didn't know what to do because I'm, I'm not someone who deals with being alone very well. I don't either. You know, I, yeah. I have the same challenge. You know, I, um, I've also written on shows, not the kind of shows you've done, more comedy shows. And right. when they end, it's... Um, First of all, I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. So there's a week of just kind of regenerate, you know, right. and relaxing and enjoying that time. But um, I do believe that idle time is the devil's workshop. Yes. And I've been in the devil's workshop at yeah. times doing lots of building, well, <laughs> whatever I, I, that means. I'll tell you what you're supposed to be doing in the downtime if you're a writer. I think I know. It's called writing. It's called writing. Yeah, I <laughs> exactly. know. I, I try. And, I do a pretty good job. And but, I failed yeah. miserably uh, through a series of, you know, personal dysfunction and uh, bitter resentment and entitlement for many years to not do that. I, I spent a lot of time, to be honest with you, in movie theaters and in, move, in music stores. That's my other uh, passion is music, you know, and kind of wandering the streets, you know, wondering what to do with my time avoiding uh writing on my own you know it was what is just, that is it fear it's fear yeah yeah it's it's, it's fear it, it's you know it's a sense of entitlement it's a sense of well i did work my ass off at this point and they rewarded me by giving me a writing show so now my credits should be enough for them to hire me for another one right uh, meanwhile that's not how it works because most writers have a stack of samples that they're constantly going through and i even had an agent you know push me to write more samples and i was you know uh, you know, and, and there's a side, look, I worked my ass off for this guy, really. I mean, I, I, the assistants we've had recently, I'm just like, I, I want to strangle them. They're like, you know, well, it's three o'clock. There's a Taylor Swift concert up on the Hollywood Boulevard. So, uh, I think I, I need to leave early today. When I was an assistant, I was like a deer in the headlights, you know, I was like, am I doing enough? You know, and I'm, I always came in early and I never left before my boss did. And he rewarded me. The guy took me around the world as an assistant. I got to go to London. I got to go to New Zealand, you know, I got to go to Oregon and Florida and... Uh, now, I'm going to ask the question everyone's thinking. Yeah. Were you sleeping with him? Because <laughs> <laughs> it is a fair question. No, he had a, 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 a quite attractive younger wife, but, <laughs> but I made his life a lot easier and I made sure that I did that and, and I was rewarded for that, you know. But unfortunately with that became the sense of entitlement because it became this game of... You know, I'm going to promote you to be a writer if the show's successful. Well, most of the shows only went one season and I didn't really get my shot. And to be honest with you, you know, it's funny. People say to me like, oh, you're so talented. Um, and I tell them, no, I'm not. And that's not a bad thing. Um, when I first started writing, I sucked at it. I was terrible. I, I could show you the early screenplays and you would probably throw up reading them. I mean, and well, now I, I'm interested. I started to get a little bit better, but I was very inconsistent. You know, and my boss had his doubts about me as well, you know, and I, as I would have as well. Um, but I, you know, I, the one thing I am is tenacious. I will not give up. So, you know, I just kept writing and kept writing, and kept writing. He gave me my first script in 1996, you know, on a show called The Cape. Uh, it was about astronauts down in, uh, in Cape Canaveral. You know, and it was, I remember it was my first um, thing, my first script I'd ever written, my first credit. And he didn't have to, and the company wasn't paying for it, but he flew me down there, you know, and I got to be on set with the director and the director was a guy named Tom Wright, a wonderful guy, very gracious and, you know, included me and asked me in my opinion. And, you know, I didn't know that that's what writers were supposed to do. And that's kind of what I, you know, I learned. Um, 
And, you know, this went on. Uh, and then there were, you know, a few years again where there were, you know, there were downtimes. He didn't get a show on the air, but I was still had a company to go to, you know, mm-hmm. and money was still coming in. And uh, like I said, after a while, you're finished your first writing assignment and you're not an assistant. You got no company to go to. And there's a sense of, well, I worked my ass off for this guy. So he, he next time he works and gets a show, um, I know he's going to put me on. So it's just a matter of time. I don't really have to write these samples that everybody else is writing. You know, he's going to take care of me. You know, he's, you know, he's already, you know, and sure enough, the next show that that happened, you know, uh, well, actually at that time, you know, we went through three or four years where we worked year after year after year. But even the downtime there, you'd have about, you know, three or four months between seasons. And I, I didn't do anything except like you said, be incredibly uncomfortable being alone during the day. You should have called me. Yeah. If I were free, I would have Exactly, you know. Uh, But then, you know, uh, somewhere around 2002, you know, it was over and, and, you know, you're... What was over? uh, That run of shows, that string of shows, and this was going to be a longer period With your mentor. Well, I mean, he wasn't, he didn't have a show on the air, you know. And again, I was relying on him. It was basically, if he doesn't work, I don't work, you know. And that means... I'm not lifting a finger to write any of these spec scripts either that everybody's you right. know writing. Um, it, it's funny because when I was working as an assistant for him, I was cranking out spec scripts because I was desperate to try and now, get an agent. For those of you who don't know, a spec script spec stands for speculative or speculation. Right. It's basically how a writer shows uh, his or her voice, her her writing skills. Usually, a spec script is based on a current running currently running show. Right. Although sometimes I've heard of people like the sitcom world, they'll do, uh, I remember hearing a story about a guy who did a Bewitched. Yeah, I, I, that's, they've done that occasionally, gone you know, off the reservation and gone to you know, older shows just because everybody's doing the same specs over and over. What were your specs? Oh God, uh, to try and get an agent. I, I first started out with a friend of mine from New York who's a, an executive now, but we were writing sitcom specs and we did a Simpsons and we did a Cheers and we did a... Um, married with children. And then, you know, I decided that I, you know, was working for a drama writer, so I should write some drama writing. And, uh, I read your Kojak. It was great. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I told you they're shooting Ironside (laughs) at the block now. Yeah. That's one to bring back. Bring back. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an ER and I remember, you know, thinking like the way ER is so crazy, I'm just going to jam a lot of coffee. And that way when I write it, it'll have that frantic energy to it. And, you know, I wrote an NYPD blue. What do you mean? You you had the characters drinking coffee? Or you no, were I, coffee? I just hammered coffee because I figured that was the way to get that frantic energy. <laughs> did to it work? Uh, yeah, I think it did. I think it showed up in the script that way. Uh, I wrote an NYPD blue spec that my friend Paul Weber is a casting uh uh, a uh, what do you call those guys who cast casting director? A uh, casting director, thank you. <laughs> and he said he still uses the, one of those scenes from that script in his workshops, and I, I that's kind of nice. Yeah, that is. Yeah, and uh, I wrote an X Files. Uh, X- Did this get you work? No, it got me into my first pitch, which was a disaster, absolute disaster. But it obviously helped you improve your writing. It, it got me an agent and it helped me improve my writing. Um, but again, I wasn't, you know, beyond that, I, I stopped. I had written three or four specs and I thought that that should be enough. And I didn't realize like every year you have to write more. And I just was really petulant and said, well, this guy's going to take care of me. So I'm not right anymore. Kind of crossed my arms. And- it's painful too writing these spec scripts because you know you're not getting paid for them. Well, 
you know, that's the funny thing, and I'll, I'll get to that, that I learned it's not really so painful, you know, but it took a long time to well, learn explain that, that then. you know. And also, I want to hear about the, yeah. let's I, talk I, about the pitch that went horrible and then get back okay. to the pain. This was a show called Silk Stockings. It was run by a guy named David Peckinpah. I, what a great name. Oh, I think it was Sam Peckinpah's kid. I, I, I believe so. But anyway... He came out of this, uh, the school, Stephen J. Cannell, you know, and these were, you know, right wing golf plan, you know, let's flip up the collar on the Izod shirt, you know, no nonsense, you know, whiskey, drinking, cigar smoking, no bullshit guys, you know, uh, sorry about that. That's okay. We're, we're not, okay. you could, yeah. yeah. So I, I go, and I'm just nervous as hell. I've never pitched before, you know, and I'm just, you and know. And again, for those of you who are not familiar, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but the uh, pitching is where we go in and pitch a show idea. Like it could be a whole series, mm -hmm. like a concept for a show, or it could be an episode, an idea within a currently existing show. Yeah. So I get in the room and it's me, you know. And these three guys in their Izod shirts with the collars flipped up, <laughs> you know, on Hollywood Boulevard in the Canal office. Why don't you flip yours up just yeah, for the story? You know, okay. What do you got, kid? Pop you know, that this, collar. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I launch into it, you know, and... and uh, His collar's popped. If and, you know, I launch into my first one. And I'm, I'm like, uh, shaking. They're asking a couple of questions. And I get through it and I look around and everybody looks around and kind of shrugs. And, well, what's the next one, you know? And I think it was yeah, I, pitching series ideas. Uh, yeah, no, 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 just episodic ideas. And and I think within a, sorry, I am sorry to interrupt, but like with when you say episodic ideas, so I'm clear, you're saying within a current epi series a, that's running, an upper ring series. Yeah. Oh, and this yeah. was that particular silk exactly, stocking. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So I think I got into the second or third pitch, and the middle of it, Peck and Paw stops me. He goes, Charles. I'm hating the story, <laughs> and I'm just froze. Like I, I, I have a couple more, and I finished out. And I just left there so mortified and humiliated. It was just, uh, it was horrible. Did you cry? I, I was close. <laughs> you know, I was really upset. Again, I just had sucked on it, at, at it, you know, for so long. Um, and for continued to suck at it and really didn't have a lot of practice to do it because I didn't really have, you know, a lot of ideas. And again, uh, my journey, unfortunately, for many years is one of entitlement and, uh, you know, and it not working out very well for me. Well, where does that entitlement come from? God, uh, if I have to ask, you know, answer that question about it, it's probably from everybody's childhood dysfunction. So it's really, know. it's something that from life. I think experience. it is. I, I think it is. I think it's, you know, you learn things very young, very early on, and it's very hard to unlearn them. And it's very easy for people to say, well, you know, it's not so-and-so's fault and you got to take responsibility for yourself. But when you get something ingrained in you, when you are really small, you know, I mean, it, it's like etched in there and it's, you know, and sometimes it's very difficult to see. People can point it out to you, but, you know, it, uh, you know, under certain circumstances, it feels like life-saving. You know, it feels like a survival skill. It is yeah. a child. What's that? As a child and then as an adult, it no longer works. Yeah, exactly. But it still feels like a survival skill, you know? Even and as an adult. Yeah. Because it's still there. But, but you're not aware of it. You know, you're not like, well, I'm doing this to save my life. It's just like, it feels just natural to you, you know, that that's the way things are. And it, it's a very warped sense of the way the world works. You know, if everybody else is writing stacks of sample scripts and you're thinking well i shouldn't have to do that i should just have the success without having to do that you know and you you blind yourself to that because it's just kind of like well i don't want to see that i don't want to admit that because i'm really scared to write spec scripts because i'm afraid i'm not going to be good at it was know? the entitlement perhaps coming from uh your childhood and in, in that perhaps maybe 
one parent uh, so unconditionally loved you that you felt um, somehow ultra special? No, I don't think it's that. I, I think there's part of it that, you know, I was told that we were sort of special and better than other people and more intelligent. But I think there's more to it than that. I think I think it's different, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's, it's you know, uh, a furious attempt to rise above middle class mediocrity at the same time, you know, um, you know, uh, perhaps a, you know, a fear from childhood and a laziness born out of a lot of marijuana abuse <laughs> as well. Right. You know, um, and, you know, it's, again, it, it's really, you know, fear. Again, I just don't want to write these things because I'm afraid I'm not going to measure up, you know, and I'm not good enough and I'm not going to be accepted. And like this guy who says, Charles, I'm hating the script. Well, what if when I write spec scripts and I'm trying to get jobs and... There are a lot more, Charles. I'm hating the scripts. So, and you've got a guy who's, you know, who's, you know, you're, you're busting your ass for and who you're pretty sure will hire you whenever he works. So, you know, and then he, you know, you continue on and, uh, you know, a couple of years again, no, no shows, but, you know, I was still working in a company. Hold on. I want to put a pin in it, so to speak. Yeah. A couple questions. Do you... It, why subject yourself to all this pain? You know what I mean? There are other careers mm. that you anyone can go in. Uh, you know, if you're being a restaurant manager or, yeah. you know, this is such a personal type career. You go down the road on something and you feel invested in it and you get enough encouragement to believe that it's possible and the rewards, the payoff that you see other people getting are so huge that you figure it's worth it. Money payoff or what? Well, Prestige? I mean... I don't know if it's prestige, it's it's money, but it's also money getting to do something that is actually fun and enjoyable when you do it. So you get a rush out of it when you're doing it? Yeah, I mean, look, I could have stayed in New York and done real estate and probably made a lot of money, but I would have been sitting by myself alone in these, you know, apartments, renting apartments to people. Maybe I could have, you know, started selling apartments, you know, in a, in a three-piece suit in 90-degree heat in a New York City train having to work on Saturday and Sundays, and I just didn't want to do that. Not everyone wears a three-piece suit. No. <laughs> Well, but well, also, you know, by that time, you know, you're kind of pregnant with it. You know, you're going to give it a shot and you understand that it's a competitive business and it takes a while and you get a taste, you know, right. 1996, you know, I get a script and I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. I mean, you get a, a big taste sometime, you know, about 2005, I was, you know, basically declaring bankruptcy. I was out of money. I didn't know I was going to pay my rent. I hadn't worked in a year and a half, you know. And uh, I get a call from the Writers Guild. I said, we have some residual money from you from a show called Relic Hunter. I'm like, Relic Hunter? Well, the last time I wrote on that show was 2001. And I already got a bunch of residual money. I got a lot of residual money. How much money are we talking about? Mm $50,000. And you just... You know, yeah. and you know, and 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 by the way, there's five no, zero, right? and by the way, there's another check for twenty thousand dollars coming. Apparently, they're selling box sets of this stuff in Asia. You know. And that's incentive to keep in the game, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it, it becomes a drug, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and even the first script, you know, just the amount of money when you're, you know, an assistant making, you know, a certain amount of money a year, and then you write a script and you make that same amount in two weeks, you know, I mean, that's, and, but you make it doing what you love again. It's not something that, you know, you really enjoy doing it in the process. And that's really what keeps you in the game. You know, and what should keep people writing. Have you ever thought of quitting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like all the time? Not all the time, over the years. I mean, you know, every year it's, you know, six months from now, 
this is all going to be over. And, you know, as you get older, though, and the world changes, it becomes a lot more scary because, you know, I'm sorry, it's not just as simple as Obama says, like, we'll just go back to school and retrain. Yeah, you know, you put yourself in $80,000 worth of debt and, you know, in your 40s now, start over, uh, you know, at the bottom level of any career. Uh, it's not quite that simple. You right. know, it's like the basically like, you know, I'm really pregnant with this shit now. What else am I going to do now? You know, people do restart careers all the time. Their backs are, you know, my back's against the wall and I have to do that. I might have to do that, but I'm still, you know, I need to get to the, the point of the story here, though. Go you know, on. Which is, you know, over the years, um, you know, uh, 2002 comes and, you know, again, there's no show. And, you know, I'm left wandering the streets, refusing to write my spec script. You know, I've got another agent and the boss gets a show on NCIS, gets a chance on NCIS, you know, and I go in and work for him and he's working for one of the top Hollywood TV guys, you know, Don Belisario, who is just, you know, incredibly talented, but also incredibly dysfunctional and, you know, saying this on the air, but everyone is pretty much common knowledge, you know, Don's not an easy guy to work for. You know, and my boss is trying to tell me how to play this and I'm not listening to him. You know, I'm all I know is that I'm finally made it. You know, I got an office mm. on Sunset Gower, you know, with a view of the Hollywood sign and, you know, I'm ordering buck slips with my name on it, not listening to my boss. And You're this, ordering buck slips? Buck slips, you know, these little cards that have your, your name on them and stuff. Oh, okay. You know? Like they're note cards, but yeah, they're, yeah, I know exactly. what you're I'm, I'm kind of big shotting it a little, trying to keep it, you know, cool. But this is one of these offices where he does not want you to have writer's rooms. He wants everybody to be individual, mm. you know. Don and, did. What's that? Don. Yeah, Don didn't want writer's rooms. And we, we still, we, we'd have to sneak them in. We'd have to like go down the hall and have three of us, you know, just and, and kind of peeking out, you know, to see, the, have, a, have a guy like, on, you know, like a, like a lookout, you know, like, is Don coming in, you know? <laughs> you could usually smell him, his cigars and smoke. What was the problem with that for him? I don't know, really. I think maybe he thought people would be conspiring. I, I don't know. I know. I so, really yeah. know. Um, but again, you know, I, at that time, my writing was very inconsistent and, and I just never, um, I, I'd always worked in writing rooms before that, you know, where you all get together. And I was told not to write a script um, because it would give Don ammunition to fire me. He knew that I was my boss's sort of, you know, golden boy that I helped this guy out and, you know, and, and made his life easier. And, you know, he probably looked for an excuse to cut me just to, because he was, you know, just like to mess with people. Who you know? staffed the show? Uh, well, it's a combination. You know, it's always the network, the production company, Don, and, uh, you know, and then my boss was the head writer. So, th like, was this kind of like your boss, the guy you'd been working for for years, has a gimme? He can get, like, maybe one or two guys Exactly. In. You were the guy. Exactly. And he pulled me in, you know, as a staff writer. And Don's you know? like, okay, fine. I don't know the guy. Right, but whatever. right. And my boss was telling me, look, we can get you in on the other radar. Just don't make a lot of noise. Don't write a script. Because you're going to write a script, he's going to read it. If he doesn't like it, you know, there's nothing I can do to But help. if you're not writing a script, what are you doing? Uh, I'm helping them with other stories, but that was the problem too, because I'm not, there's no writer's room and I'm not writing a script and I'm sort of helping them with other stories. There's what, you know, what else is there me to do? Again, I'm, I'm in this like thing of like, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, what am I, so I figure I'm going to write a script because I got nothing else to do, right? You're literally sitting there with nothing to do. With nothing to do. Yet I have no help on this. It's not a genre I've ever worked. I'm, I don't really get the show. It's not a genre I've ever really done before. You know, and I'm just falling apart. I mean, I'm just losing it. I'm, you know, I'm not having a nervous breakdown, but I'm, I'm freaking out, you know, and I write the script and it's a terrible script. You know, it's 
Oh, I read it back today and I'm embarrassed. I used, I sent it out after I, I finished that show, trying to get in, getting pissed off at people because they wouldn't hire me on it. I read it now and I'm embarrassed. What bad. what embarrasses you about it? It's it's just it's immature. It's it's silly. It's broad. It's it's you know some of the the concepts in it are just so beyond reality, you know, and it, it didn't get really the flavor. It was too broad, the comedy, and uh, and I was clueless, you know, and I was entitled, and I thought, you know, I was on this show, and I wrote the script, and it was good, and people should, afterwards, I should have got me an agent, and, you know, and it didn't, you know, and the, so that show was over, and I didn't get picked up. Now, I didn't feel too bad because, you know, Don also went through about a dozen writers that year. I was not the only one who didn't get through the second season of that. Uh, but there I was again and, uh, you know, out in the ether. And I think I wrote one spec script, which I, I still kind of like. I wrote a spec for Angel, you know, but my agent was pushing me to write more. And it's like over a two, three year period, you write one script. And again, you expect people to kind of, you know, open the doors for you and really nothing came of it, you know. And, uh, you know, luckily I got that huge residual check, which, you know, kept me afloat. And then, uh, you know... That came after NCAA. Yes, yes. Okay. And then around 2006, I got another show. It wasn't a lot of money called Painkiller Jane, you know, another Canadian show for sci-fi. And then uh, and then that show was over. And then there was a huge problem um, because this was the longest period of time that I went without work. 2006? Uh, it was, the show ended in 2007. And now the boss isn't... I mean, he's working, but he's... Uh, I think he, after this was working on 24, but he was just one of the writers. And when he's not in charge, he can't hire me, right? So time's going on and I've got some money stashed away, you know, and 2007 goes by and I'm doing fine. 2008 rolls by and I'm like looking at my watch and the boss still hasn't gotten a show because he's, you know, staffing on another show. There's no reason for him really. He's doing really well. It's a nice show. and He's yeah. still on NCIS? No, no, a different show. I think it was 24. But he couldn't time. bring you on that? No, because he wasn't the, he wasn't the top guy. Okay. You know, so, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm just, you know, hanging in there. I know he's going to get one, you know, and he doesn't get one. And the end of 2008 rolls around. Well, guess what? The money's starting to run out, you know, and I'm still refusing, you know, I'm still holding my breath, refusing to write spec scripts, you know, and uh, 2008 goes around and I decide, no, I got to get another job, get a little money coming in. So I'm just going to go down and get a little retail job. Not a big deal. You know, I'm kind of embarrassed to do it, but I got to have some money, you know, so I do the retail job and that's great, you know, and it's, we're still making it, but I'm sure 2009, something's going to happen. Well, guess what? You know, he comes to me at the beginning of 2009 says, you know, there's this possibility of this Canadian show we're going to do for the French and, you know, you can be on it. And I'm like, great. Um, I didn't realize that Canadian networks take years sometimes <laughs> to develop, you know, so 2009 is ticking around. I'm like, so when are they going to green light the show? Well, we're going to go to Paris in two months, you know, and they go to Paris and no, no, no. And, you know, the money's running out and, uh, you know, I spent the entire 2009 busting my ass in a job that I hated in retail, you know, uh, just losing it, you know. And uh, finally 2010 rolled around and, you know, uh, and I was really like, you know, just beaten down. You know, I was helping them try to get the show on the air because they would have to all these different reiterations of the show. But, you know, I do it, you know, when I came home after being on my feet for eight or nine or 10 hours or whatever it was, or up in the early in the morning. And then finally, you know, beginning of 2010, he says, we think this thing's going to go in June, you know, but I had to spend another 
you know. This six, is 2010? Yeah, and it's been another six months in humiliation in retail. Were you writing specs or you were still? I wasn't. I was not writing specs. My my excuse then was like, well, I'm just, I'm working so much. You know, it's working, yeah, 40, 50 hours a week. I could have written specs. I definitely could have. But again, the entitlement. And I because I knew this thing was on the horizon, you know, I'm like, I don't really have to. I know this, you know, and it's, it's crazy, you know, the amount mm -hmm. of pain. Because I, I tell you, it just was miserable you know well, the, but that said i will say that i think everybody in life should have a sales job at least once you know because it just teaches you how to be I've a had, sort of yeah I, know, I, I, I did uh, yeah. i did a telemarketing job once years yeah, ago but, but retail just sucks i feel for the people in retail because it's just it really is lousy and well, some people actually enjoy retail oh uh, yeah so. I, I don't want to get in my political soapbox but i also think it's disgusting the amount of money that are you know paid you know the the whole uh living wage question you know, there was a whole thing with uh, Walmart in Washington, D.C., and uh, there was a, uh, Washington had a uh, a thing where they, you know, they had to pay people a living wage. You had to pay people 12 or $14 an hour, and Walmart said, well, we're going to pull out. And they, you know, they give you this corporate uh, crap line of, well, you know, you just lost a bunch of jobs because you're, you know, if you we have to pay people that much money, then, you know, then our company is not going to be profitable. And I'm like, how many people in Walmart make more than $300,000 a year? You know, and if you were to take 10% of those people of their salaries and, and give it to the people, you know, who, uh, you know, who are just trying to be able to pay their rent, how much would it really hurt a guy making a million dollars a year if he's making, you know, 950, you know, so he can't buy a Beamer 7 series, he has to buy a Beamer 5 series. Meanwhile, somebody can, you know, pay their rent in a city where the average one bedroom apartment is $1,000 a month, you know, and then they get this, you know, this crap from these old Reaganites. Oh, that's socialism. And it's like, I, I, I don't know. I, I just think I, I call it fair. You know, let's, let's just be honest about it here. So it sounds like you weren't making a lot of money at that retail job. No. <laughs> and, I, and I was someone who, you know, I don't live in a luxurious apartment by any means. I live in a small one bedroom in a nice area. And the money they pay you on retail, there's no way I could afford that. Right. You know, and it, and, you know, and there were people working there who had families and it just kind of pissed me off a little bit, you know. Well, in that, but that still didn't motivate you enough to write those specs. No, no, because again, I had, had, a, that I, I had a little bit of a carrot. So we got on this show and I'm making more money than I ever had uh, in my life. You know, I finally, you know, they, and we were, we were working down here and I had a bit of a come to Jesus in terms of, you know, this guy's getting older. You know, he's not, he was, you know, at, at that point he was, you know, just over 60. And I'm like, this ain't going to last forever, me relying on this guy. And I got this problem because I'm still scared to write specs, you know. And uh, I got this guy, this sort of life coach who's motivating me and stuff, you know. And so this show goes over and this co coach is motivating me and he's, he's telling me like, you know, you're walking around like you're semi-retired. I get really pissed off at him, you know, and I'm trying to do everything. And I realize like, you know. I need to write, I need to write these spec scripts, but if the thought about just jumping in and doing it scares the hell out of me, you know? And I thought about it, uh, something I'd read a long time ago about, you know, um, people who come from certain dysfunctional backgrounds, um, that they have a very difficult time taking huge projects and parsing them down into small steps. And they, all they see is this huge wall and they get overwhelmed. You know, and it was one of the, the, I think it was a Claudia Black book or something like that. And it struck me that if I were to take the most ridiculous minimum amount of time and perhaps with a timer and start with that, that I might be able to start some momentum and sort of like 
putting a lobster in a pot and slowly turning up the heat could trick myself <laughs> into spending time, enough time to start writing some spec scripts, right? And uh, so I think I started committing to just doing like, you know, an hour a day. Um, I think it was before that was a little bit less. And I started, but I did start doing like an hour a day. And then sometimes when I got my first spec script written on NCIS LA, you know, um, uh, you know, I really, really put everything into it that I possibly could. Because before I'd written spec scripts and I'd just kind of been like, yeah, you know, I think it's a for a good first draft, but I didn't really just grind everything where I knew there was nothing more I could do. And I really did it on this one. And when I started writing the spec script and getting into it, uh, it was more than an hour a day because I was enjoying it, you know, and it mm -hmm. would increase and stuff. And uh, so I wrote that one. And, um, and then another friend uh, hired me, a friend of a friend said he wanted to do these uh, this horror movies. So we uh, got together and I wrote, there was going to be three parts to it. It was going to be like with this trilogy. And he paid me a little bit of money and I did this, used the same technique to kind of just, you know, at a minimum of an hour a day, sometimes it turned to more. And then all of a sudden I had a little short horror spec. So now I've got two specs and I do the same thing. I go out, you know, and I'm trying to get agents and stuff with these two scripts and it's not enough. You know, because the one thing everybody's telling me also is that you got to write an original. And I'm like, original, I can never, you know, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, I just wrote a spec script. And now, now they're changing the game. They're changing the rules. Well, on the horror assholes. was original. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't the horror yeah, but, but, but it, Yeah, but it's, it's not, not a, like, it's uh, not an hour. A, it's quirky. It's a half hour. It's so off book, you know, okay. it, it's not something, you know, but I'm, and I'm like, now I'm like doubly pissed because I'm like, you know, I could write spec scripts all all day back in the day, but now the rules have changed. Now you could have something original. Like one of one of these people changing the rules. It used on to me be something shit. on the air. Yeah, yeah. So you well, know. when you're doing something for on the air, do you? Uh, how much is enough when it comes to studying the show? Are you watching an entire? Uh, yeah, I'll whole, tell you. Everything? You know, um, when it came time, the next spec script I wanted to write was Justified. You know, because I wanted a quirky. You know, NCISLA was not a show that I was really in love with, but it was a good network sample, just for a nine o'clock network sample. But what I really loved, and I noticed myself watching. Or, you know, all these cool cable shows. I was watching True Blood and Boardwalk Empire and, you know, and uh, I was trying to figure out what to write. And, you know, and I watched Justified and I'm like, this is really good writing. And I'm like, I could never do this. My God, this is so hard. It's Elmore Leonard. The way they do these quirky, weird characters and the plots, the I, I can't do this. This is crazy. You know, but I decided I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to do, you know? And I watched every episode of Justified, you know, and it took me... The research probably took me nine months, you know, because I was I was doing some other sort of under the table work to get some money coming in. Did you also right. um, get some scripts, that hard copy scripts from the show, as part of your? I didn't. Work? No, no, I, I didn't. I, th I thought I tried to, but I and and my connection fell through. But what I did, and I have this technique, you know, I, I first of all I watch every episode, right? And then uh, one of the first producers I ever worked for was a, a, a movie producer, a TV movie producer named Lou Rudolph. He showed me to do something, how to do something called a breakdown, which is after you have a script, you write a short description of every scene. So you can see in a few pages how the structure lays out. You know, it's harder to see in a 100-page script or, you know, a 60-page script or whatever it is. It's very hard to see how the structure lays out. But if you have just a description of what happens over, you know, a seven, eight-page document, you can see how the structure lays out and then you can switch things around. But you can also see how a show is laid out and if there are any patterns. And I found that very helpful. And I did that with the NCIS LA. And I, I've done that often, you know, in, in my story editing work, you know, when we have to rearrange a script that's not working. So you'll do, like, location... Time of day, what, what happens, happened? exactly, what characters. And I did that for a few Justifieds just from watching, hitting pause, writing it down, going to the next scene, hitting pause, 
you know. And so eventually, I, comparing episode to episode, you would yeah. see patterns. And I've got to tell you what happened, and this def, I, I, I swear this happened. It was, you know, at first, I, the characters they were so foreign to me. And after I watched every episode of every season and I did those breakdowns, I could hear those characters' voices in my head. They were started talking to me. And I could hear lines that weren't from the stuff that they would do. They were just lines that the characters were saying of original stuff I wanted to do. And I had a couple of weird ideas. And I knew you really had to push this. Elmore Leonard, you had to do quirky shit. And I had a couple of weird Elmore ideas. Elmore Leonard being? Elmore Leonard's a, a famous crime writer. He writes uh, this, you know, stuff, you know, about, uh, you know, usually about crazy Floridians and stuff. He's sort of a, a version of, I don't know. I don't know if it's Floridian. That's Carl Hyacin. I'm sorry. But it's just very quirky. He wrote uh, Get Shorty. So mm -hmm. it's that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's dark, but it's also with a lot of dark humor and a lot of weird, quirky characters and stuff. Okay. And they really brought that to the show. Graham Yost is the, uh, the executive producer, but Elmore Leonard's, you know, involved. But Graham, you know, really got the flavor of that, you know, and really brought it to the show. And it's very, very particular. You know, what they're doing is, you know, taking... They're not making the Southerners look dumb. I mean, they're very, they're, they're very, they've got that kind of Southern dumbness and, you know, right wing, but they're very sharp and perceptive and clever. And they're also, you know, putting them into a modern day environment and stuff. And, uh, you know, I just, I probably had a hundred pages of notes before I even started writing that script, you know, because that's, that's the way I write these days when I write. If, if I'm having a problem writing, I write about the writing. You know, I mean, a little stream of consciousness, just like, you know, this is a story. I want to do the script like this. And I think that this scene might, and I'm like, no, that's not good. That'll never work. But what if we do this? And I'm literally writing this out on paper, mm -hmm. you know? And then I, when I have enough of that, then I go back and I start cutting out the superfluous stuff that doesn't work. And it's like sculpting. And you eventually, you get an outline. So, because uh, we're, we're winding down here. Oh, yeah. Where are you today? It sounds like. Well, here's the deal. And here's yes. what, I, what I said. And, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but I finally got it you know, that um, you got to get off your ass and you got to write. So I wrote that NCS LIA. I wrote a justified spec. And then I had an idea. I, I went up to Canada just to pitch some stuff. I had an agent up there I, uh, just really quickly on the show 13. Uh, I was trying to get on the second, ep the second season of this, of this show and no one was responding to my calls. So I call up the executive producer that hired me and I said, I want to be on this show. And he said, great, you know, Roger Avery is the executive producer and why don't you meet him down in LA? And I meet Roger and I tell him this incredible story about this crazy ex-girlfriend in the middle of the story. Roger puts his hand on and says, you're hired. Great. You know, and I don't hear from them for six weeks. But in the meantime, I think I'm hired. So I scramble and I get an agent up in Canada. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm left with, I don't get the job, but I'm left with this agent. And the agent's like, well, if I'm your agent. You need to come up here and you need to pitch television show ideas. I'm like, television show ideas? Well, uh, you know, I've never done this before. He's like, well, I'm setting up meetings. So, you, you know, you need to come up here and do this. So uh, I go up there. Right. And he set up all these meetings. I got a couple of ideas. And the day I get off the plane, the guy from 13 calls back, says, I'm sorry, 13 didn't work out, but we need a, you know, consulting producer on the show called Lost Girl and you're hired, <laughs> you know, and the guy cancels all my meetings except for one of the Canadian Broadcasting Company, you know, and I go in a Canadian Broadcasting Company and this guy goes, uh, you know, so what have you got? And I tell him a couple of things and I'm like, you know, I was just sitting on my, my father had passed away a couple of years ago and I just thought of a, an idea and I'm pitching it to him and and I see his eyes kind of light up. <laughs> and he says, do you have anything written on this? I'm like, no, I, not really. You know, I'm just kind of casually here. He's like, well, you know, the next day my agent calls me and says, this guy loves this thing. He wants paper on it. After about four weeks, I'm working, you know, crazy hours on the show. I don't have time. And he comes back and says, this, the, his boss wants to meet you. He can't wait anymore. They take me out to the Ritz-Carlton. They, 
you know, they give me the, the seats, like, we're going to give you a pilot script, we're going to give you a Bible, we're going to hire you a story editor, you know, we love this idea. Great. Coming to work the next day, they're both fired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I've got this, you know, um, this idea, and I have to work it up because they want to see it. And, you know, and I've got other ideas I'm pitching, and all of a sudden I start pitching, and he's got me set up with 10 meetings, and I realize as I start to pitch over 10, I'm getting real comfortable doing this. And, like, it's not the kid who is pitching the horrible silk stockings. Uh, 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 I'm doing it with confidence and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I go back home to L.A. And, you know, I, I had that job producing, but I'm like, I got to write more. So right now where I'm at is, you know, I wrote my I, one of the pitches that everybody liked, but it never went. I said, this is going to be my first original script, you know, and I just finished writing it. So I've got my first original spec. I've got my two spec scripts. I've got my horror script. I've got fully worked out the, uh, the, the show that didn't work out that they didn't buy because they were fired. A lot of people kept saying they were interested, but they didn't see how it would be a TV series. So I decided, screw it. And I wrote a 25-page treatment for the TV series, you know, and I'm in the middle of writing another treatment for another TV series. So I've got, you know... Something's changed. Yeah. And you. And, yeah, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, my, uh, my one hour a day minimum has turned into, you know, close to three hours in the morning, and I do more work in the afternoon. But I had to sneak up on it. I had to do it a little bit at a time. And now I find I'm a prolific writer. I'm, I'm working every day. And it's amazing what you can get done in about three hours if you sit down and commit to it. But I couldn't do it you know, all the way. And again, I don't know the future is going to hold, but if this doesn't work out, at least I'll know that I've, I've done what I'm supposed to be doing. I threw my back into it and there's no, there won't be regrets like, uh, you know, I should have been writing specs and now I'm back working retail. And if I only had written specs, well, I have written specs now. So at least there's that. And, and you're being rewarded for it. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> well, your story is, is really inspiring and yeah. I appreciate you being open and vulnerable yeah, because a lot of you. what you shared with is I'm sure personal. Yeah, and, yeah, very much. So. But you know what? I learned a lot and I guarantee uh, those of you listening, I'm sure you've learned a lot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great lessons in there, but instead of me trying to summarize them, I think we can all come up with our own lessons from what you've shared. So thank you for that. Yeah, and um, for again, it was just fantastic talking to you. Good luck with you, uh, everything. Look for uh, Charles's name in the credits. He's on his way to, he's got some really good stuff coming up and, and, and you deserve it. Thank you, you deserve all the success. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, again, this is... Vic Cohen's It's a Fair Question. I look forward to uh, you all joining me soon. And thank you, Jeremy. Great, uh, great to have you on the show. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question.